Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, the heavy lifting is going to be done by two of my guest hosts, Peterson Toscano and Liam Hooper. Peterson's in Pennsylvania, and Liam is in North Carolina, and every month or so they join forces to produce something called Bible Bash. For those with Bible-related trauma, the idea of bashing the Bible probably sounds pretty good. After all, many associate the Bible, and often religion, in the United States with a great deal of unkindness and self-righteous bigotry. And because Peterson is gay and Liam is a trans man, you might think they would get into a good bashing of the Bible, but you'd be wrong. They've both experienced the Bible being used as a cudgel, but they've both delved deep into the Bible and seen things missed by most cisgender, straight, and mainstream people. And they use their insights to wrest back a resource from religious folks who have used or misused a book that can be claimed as a force for liberation and growing love. That's what Bible Bash is about, seeing the full spectrum of the Bible and using it to empower a wider spectrum of humanity to shine bright and clear. The Bible Bash podcast is carried several places, including on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website, and on our site you'll find links to Liam Hooper and the MinistriesBeyondWelcome.org website, and to Peterson Toscano and his website, and the Citizens Climate Radio podcast he produces monthly. I'll turn it over now to Liam and Peterson to share two of their recent Bible Bash podcasts. Over to you, Liam. Thanks, Mark. Peterson and I are happy to be sitting in today as guest hosts for Spirit in Action. Well, we hope you enjoy this episode of Spirit in Action and our little contribution from the Bible Bash podcast. Enjoy! Hello and welcome once again to the Bible Bash Podcast. The Bible Bash Podcast. Two men, a northern bell and a southern gentleman, we come together to talk about text, biblical and otherwise. I'm Peterson Toscano from Sunbury, Pennsylvania. I'm Liam Hooper from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And you have made it to episode three. Every episode we do the same thing. It's very straightforward. One of us, either Liam or I, will present a Bible passage uh, that we talk about. Then the other one, who did not present the passage, will respond. And then finally, the person who responds will present an alternate text. So Liam, what's the text that you have for us today? The story that I want to talk about comes from Genesis 16 and Genesis 21 in the Hebrew Bible. It's the story of Ishmael and his mother, Hagar. All right, so I'm going to hand it over to you. You share what you have, and I will attempt to (laughs) say something smart afterwards, or at least just ooh and ah at your um, absolute brilliance. Uh, You need to understand, he comes like fully prepared with like notes like mad, and I'm a performance artist. (laughs) I'll try to say something smart, too. So there are two stories in this tale. We have Ishmael and Mother Hagar, beginning in chapter 16 and then finishing up sort of for a while in um, Genesis 21. And, of course, there are variations of this in the Quran. But we're going to look at the Hebrew text. And the story goes something like this. 
Hagar is an Egyptian woman who's a handmaiden, which means she's a slave to Sarah and Abraham, who we sort of know who they are because they become the Hebrew people. And Sarah and Abraham have been given, if you recall, this promise by God that Abraham will have offspring. And out of this offspring will become a nation of people who will be God's people. And yet time passes and it passes and it passes and there are no children. And so Sarah has this brilliant idea to engage a pretty common tradition at the time, which is to give her handmaiden Hagar to Abraham as a concubine. And any offspring she bears will be Abraham's heirs. Now, there are layers and layers of problems with this. <laughs> Women at the time had very little agency, very little power, and were essentially possessions. And so Sarah decides she's going to hurry along God's plan because God isn't keeping up God's end of the deal here. Hagar is given to Abraham, and she conceives a son. Well, she doesn't know that yet, but she conceives, and she's disturbed by this. She's disturbed by the whole process, so she leaves. Can I ask you a, a yes. question about, like, one thing I forget, like, what was her, did, do we see what her initial reaction when this was offered to her to be this surrogate mother? We we don't really get a lot of information about that. I think it's probably because of the status of women at the time. That's not the point of the story. The point of, the way the story is told is to elevate the story of Abraham and Sarah. Okay, but but she she does get upset at one point. She's pregnant, and then she she leaves. Yeah, she's not happy to be a slave whose body is now exploited. It's not just her labor, but it's her entire personhood who's being exploited. So she leaves. The messenger of God, an angel of God, finds her at a stream out in the desert. Ask this beautiful question. Where are you coming from and where are you going? And Hagar explains that she's fleeing. And the angel of God instructs her to go back. Go back to these people who have enslaved her. Because clearly God understands a pregnant woman in the desert is going to end up a dead woman in the desert. And the angel of God reveals God has plans for you and for your offspring. You go back. So Hagar goes back. Ishmael is born and is named Ishmael at the instruction of this messenger of God who meets Hagar by the stream. So you shall name your child Ishmael. And what does Ishmael mean? This is marvelous. So Ishmael in Hebrew comes from two roots, Shema, which means to hear or to listen, and El, God. So basically, Ishmael means God will listen. God hears. In Arabic, it means God has heard. So it has sort of a past tense spin on it. But the languages are very similar. The, the intent is the same. God hears us. So when the child is born, as she was instructed, she names the child Ishmael, and the child grows. And by the time Isaac comes along, Ishmael's like 13, right? So the, Ishmael has grown up believing he is Abraham's son. He will be heir, right? He is a valid member of this family, not simply the son of a slave woman. But Sarah puts two and two together and figures out, oh, wait a minute, the bulk of the inheritance, based on the Near Eastern customs at the time, will go to Ishmael, not to Isaac. And Isaac is the miracle baby, right? Isaac is the miracle baby, yes. How old is Sarah? She's when like she... 99 or something. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's old. Yeah, she even like laughs in God's face when, when the message comes that you're going to have a child. And she laughs. And isn't that kind of where Isaac's name yes, comes from? Yes, it means he laughs, basically, <laughs> right? And She's like, you got to be joking. <laughs> yeah. 
she is stunned. And what's funny is, you know, the angel of God says to her, you laughed. She says, no, I didn't. God's voice is, oh, yes, you did. You laughed. So you will name the child Isaac. So, okay. So Isaac is born and Ishmael is already 13 years old. He's, He's already entering age, manhood. Really. Yes. Yeah. And Sarah entices Abraham to send them out into the desert to just get rid of the two of them. Get rid of my slave. Get rid of the slave's offspring. And everything will go to Isaac. And all will be as it should be. Sarah takes no accountability. There's this inability to feel remorse or compassion. And Abraham is kind of stunned by the whole thing and troubled by it. And then yet, here comes another angel which means messenger, really, in Hebrew. So another messenger of God comes and says, don't worry for the boy or for the slave woman. God has a plan. You go ahead and do what Sarah tells you to do. Which what she was telling was basically murder, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, they're going to die out there. I mean, it's the, it's the desert. It's a Bedouin society. That's why it's like such, so much hospitality because it, these are harsh conditions. Um, and we hear about this a lot in the news today about people crossing deserts and how incredibly dangerous and how many people don't make it. Yes. And, you know, recently we had this situation where, um, volunteers, compassionate people were leaving jugs of water out in the desert and the patrols were going out and dumping out the water. They weren't even bringing it back. And using it here in some way, right? They're d- dumping it out. So it's the same kind of thing, right? Abraham packs her and, and Ishmael up with a skin of water and maybe, you know, a few little hunks of bread or something, sends them out in the desert to die. When the water runs out, Hagar puts um, Ishmael down kind of to sleep under a bush. You know, one of those scraggly little desert thorny bushes, probably not a comfortable place and begins to sob. And she puts the child there because she can't look on him when he dies. So she knows they're going to die and she can't bear to watch her child die. The child she didn't plan on. Yet she loves. And a messenger of God comes and opens her. The text says her eyes were opened so that she could see water there, water that had already been provided. By this God who sustains. And the angel says, it's going to be okay. God is going to make a nation of Ishmael. So the same promise that God has given to Abraham will make a nation of you. And you will be, your people will be my people and I will be their God. This messenger is making the very same promise to this slave woman and her illegitimate son. These people give birth to what is Islam now. So Abraham and Sarah become the the origins of what we know as Judaism. Ishmael becomes the origin of what we know as Islam. And these two faith systems, very distinct from one another, sharing common stories and and common ways of looking at this one God, this monotheistic God who has emerged in the middle of this Near Eastern um, pantheon of, of gods, sees these people as equal and in a way elevates the outcast slave woman and her illegitimate son. God does for them, these two people, what God will later do for the entire Hebrew nation with Moses. Meets them in the wilderness, transforms them in the wilderness, hears them, sees them, and sustains them. Now, there's some interesting name things here. You know what a Hebrew geek I am. 
and how fascinated I am. I could could listen to you talk about the Hebrew names and the word forever and ever. So this is fabulous, right? So this desert is the desert of Paran. And most scholars tend to think that the the word Paran comes from the Hebrew word Pa'ar, which means to glorify or to beautify. Yeah. Think about that for a second. Now, in this first encounter that Hagar had with the messenger of God, when she first flees, no, when she's pregnant, oh, God, here I am a slave woman. Now I'm going to give birth to this slave child. This is not, you know, I'm. she's got some real courage and some resistance in her. And she's out. She's willing to die in the desert rather than do this. And the angel comes along, and she perceives this presence of this angel as essentially the presence of God. And what she does is something, I haven't found another person in the Hebrew text who has done this. There are many people in the Hebrew text who God names, like God names Ishmael and Isaac. There are many people who God changes their names, and there are many people who name places because of their encounter with God. And she does something that foreshadows what will happen with Jacob and others. In that she doesn't name the place, she names God. She dares to name God, and God affirms this. She names God Elroy. Now, the ending there, that suffix, is on the word ra'ah, which means to see. El, of course, means God. So it's the God who sees me. The suffix is first person. Elroy, God who sees me. Staggering. And then we're going to name the child God who hears. God hears. Wow. This is just so, to me, this is the core of the story. And who is it that God sees and hears and lifts up as an entire nation of separate people with a separate faith, but this slave woman and her illegitimate son? And and the place, does the place have a place, a name in the Hebrew Bible? Because I know in Islam it has a, a name, a big name, an important name. Well, it does. so here's something else that's fascinating. This place, Paran. This place in the desert, the desert of Paran, is also the place that the Hebrew people will come to rest on their way to Sinai, to Mount Sinai. Okay. So when they're wandering later, they come to rest at Paran. So that the the area is called Paran, mm-hmm. and that spot where the water is found, where she has this encounter with the angel. Yes. What's the name of that place? It basically is the place of Elroy. Uh-huh. It's three three different words sort of strung together that basically means the place of the God who sees. Right. And I believe in Islam it had it's also seen as a very important place. Yes. It's yes. Mecca. It, late, yes. It, you know, later because yes. that that it had this happened at Mecca. And that's yeah, why Mecca My understanding is, is that yes. is a holy place. It is such a holy place. Mm-hmm. And you, if you think about it, there's something really fascinating going on here that Christianity does a real appropriative disservice to this story and its appropriation of the Hebrew text, right? There's something really dramatic going on here. This is the very place, this Paran, the place that it is, means to glorify or to beautify. In other words, God's presence and God's interaction with human beings there beautifies the place glorifies God and the space and the people in it. This is the same place where the Hebrew people will come to rest before receiving the Torah at Sinai. So it's this foreshadowing. And who is it? These are not the people who will become the Hebrew nation. These are the people who will give birth to Islam. 
it's it's just so marvelous, right? And so, so what's this got to do with trans and queer folks, right? Well, to me, in my sort of subversive and dig deeper reading of the thing, I think all outcast people can understand from this two things. One, the wilderness place, that place where we're cast out, where we're exiled, where we're left behind with nothing. Mm-hmm. Is sacred space. Wow. Is the place where God sees and hears and inclines. And the text actually says God inclines to hear and to see the outcast people, lifts them up, sustains them, gives them water and nurture, and then makes a whole commitment, a covenant, a covenant to be their people wow. and for to be their God. And for the people to be God's people. Mm. So the other thing we can take away is whatever faith we discern, however we hear and see the God who sees and hears us in this wilderness space as outcast people, left behind, left to die in many cases, that God is the one God. That faith is not only valid, but we are an entire nation of outcast people. And God hears us, sees us, and st- sustains us in this space. To me, this is what the story is saying. You know, it's, it's, uh, we come to the Bible in, you know, two very different ways. I mean, you clearly, you speak like a preacher and you have this <laughs> inspirational message that you make an application that, you know, people can apply uh, to their own lives. And I find that really beautiful. It's, it's typically not how I talk about the Bible. Um, I, I, and I think partly because I'm an actor and a playwright. I see it in a, a very different way. I become very suspicious even of mm-hmm. the text. Like I'm very suspicious of Abraham throughout this entire story because he's, he always comes out looking like, you know, like he's done no harm, yet he's allowing all these things to take place. But I, um, as you were talking about the, the, the characters in it, Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Abraham, I was thinking if I were producing a play, a stage play of this or a film and I had a cast, had to cast everyone and had them stand up on stage, what differences would I see in their bodies? And there are all these interesting pairings. You have Sarah and Hagar and, you know, a much older woman, probably even though she is a person of color, because this is, you know, that part of the world, everyone's people of color, but probably would have been lighter because of her class. She wouldn't have been out in the field. She wouldn't have been, she, you know, she would be in the tents while Hagar, she's, you know, already from Egypt. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, but she's also probably out doing more, but the age difference would be so very notable. Here is this elderly woman and Hagar would have been how old, like, you know, Late child teens, yeah, childbearing years. years. And we're, you know, I think in our modern times we hear this, we think, oh, someone in her twenties, but no, we're talking someone teens. teens. Yeah. So you see that pairing right there. And then, you know, we're talking about the, the age difference between Ishmael and Isaac. So here would be Ishmael, a 13 year old boy holding his little baby infant brother. Yes. Um, you know, half brother, but his brother all the same. That difference, I, again, when I, when I read it, that's not always very obvious that this is this age difference there. Uh, so uh, the, as you're saying, and I'm seeing these pairings, there's one other, um, character in the story that comes up right from the beginning through the end who I find so fascinating. For me as a, as a playwright and someone who looks at the Bible, I'm always curious about the people who are the outsiders, like mm-hmm. Hagar, 
Yeah. The ones pushed out into the wilderness. Me too. I, I, I know <laughs> I've experienced that. So that resonates with me. And I'm also very uh, interested in the people who are overlooked. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love the stories of the eunuchs because they're almost invisible. And in some ways they act in, like they're invisible, like they're not supposed to be seen or heard, but, but they are seen and heard if we look for them and they have such vital roles. And there's a character like this in Abraham's household named Eleazar. Yes. Before Isaac, Eleazar was a servant who was raised in the household as a son. He was supposed to be the heir. And at one point, Abraham's complaining, you know, to God, when God says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. How can you say that? I don't have any heirs. In fact, you know, this slave is going to be my heir because I have nobody. But this slave was the apple of his father's eye, his adopted father in a way. I mean, he took him on as the heir. But then Ishmael came. Yes. And Eleazar is knocked back a peg. Then Isaac comes. He's knocked back. It's like the royal family. You know, they like <laughs> they keep getting knocked back a peg. As William keeps having more children, Harry is like farther and farther from the throne. <laughs> and poor Eleazar. And then Eleazar is like sucked into the story over and over. So all of a sudden, Ishmael is gone and he gets closer to possibly regaining his place. And yes, maybe it's a place of power and privilege, but it may also be a place of, of getting the attention of Abraham, who seemed to only have attention for one thing at a time. And then there's that story where Abraham almost murders his son, Isaac, right? He goes to to bring him up to sacrifice him. And at this point, Isaac is about 13. Yeah, almost the same age. Ishmael's 26, having another life somewhere else. And, um, And Abraham brings a servant with him which many people think was Eleazar. We don't know for sure. Uh, but could you imagine if you're Eleazar and you're com- a companion on this trip, there's, you know, Abraham, Isaac, there's stuff for a sacrifice, but there's no animal to sacrifice. And he's like thinking like, okay, okay. The God of Israel is actually on my side. All right. I'm going to get back in now. Yeah. And then how disappointed <laughs> when Isaac comes down and Abraham has a story about a ram caught in the thicket. And I mean, who knows? Maybe he rejoiced. Maybe he was very happy. But then years later, Sarah dies and Abraham's very old. Isaac's just not interested in having a relationship with anyone, maybe because of all the trauma he's experienced so much so that Abraham says, we need to find the guy a wife because he's not interested. So he sends a servant to find a wife for Isaac. And again, many scholars think that was Eleazar. This poor Eleazar, right? He's like, now I have to find him a wife. And I don't know if I were Eleazar, I would find, I wouldn't want to do it. Or I would find the most difficult, horrible person to be a, a, a wife to, you know, like find some horrible person Get the who will shrew. make Sydney his life Mac- miserable. And uh, so this character, you know, just there's this whole other thing going on with him. Uh, and it's almost like we have two Eleazars. There's the one that we're presented as the faithful servant. But I wonder if there's this other Eliezer we don't hear about who is bitter and angry and has been disenfranchised and has been knocked back over and over and over again. Then I would love to actually do a play, write a play with these two Eleazars fighting it out to tell the story and, and reenact it in different ways. That would be marvelous. I would love to see that play. As you're speaking, I'm thinking of folks listening right now. What Liam and I want to do with this podcast is not just have the two of us. Uh, we're two white guys. We're, we're queer. I'm cis. He's trans. Sure, we have some interesting perspectives, but we want to really open this up and we are really happy to share this this uh, platform with other people. So if you're a person who does Bible 
discussions, if you are looking at text and you want to be a guest to tell one of these stories, we want you on our show. Yes, we do. We'd love to talk with you. And one of us will just step aside and say, you can have my spot this week and or this month and you can, you know, you can share. The best way to do that is to email us at ministriesbeyondwelcome at gmail.com. So we would love to have this be one of the most diverse Bible discussion locations available for folks. So all kinds of perspectives. So you have a tale from Gilgamesh for us, right? I do, yes. So this is our other text. There are other ancient texts, modern texts, that are really worth looking at, and there's some interesting parallels. The um, The story of Gilgamesh is the world's first recorded story. It's about a king who's a half-god, half-human, and who is suddenly feeling this dissatisfaction and ennui with life. It's like so interesting. So early on, you see this someone who has it all and he's like, but it's not, I need something more, something deeper. It's, there's something very modern about this. And, and then there's this introduction of a new character named Enkidu, who is almost a twin. And what I love about it is there's initially some tension between these two, much like you see tension inserted into Ishmael and Isaac and other Brothers, Esau and Jacob, Cain and Abel. We see these sort of things, you know. And so I'm just going to read, uh, from, from a little bit from the Epic of Gilgamesh. And this was translated by Stephen Langdon at the University of Pennsylvania. Gilgamesh arose, interpreting dreams, addressing his mother. My mother, during my night, I, having become lusty, I guess he has a very close relationship with his mother. Apparently. <laughs> I, having become lusty, wandered about in the midst of omens. And there came out stars in the heavens, like a... And we don't know what the word is, because it was lost. Like a blank of heaven, he fell upon me. I bore him, but he was too heavy for me. He bore a net, but I was not able to bear it. I summoned the land to assemble unto him, that heroes might kiss his feet. He stood up before me, and they stood against him. I lifted him and carried him unto thee. The mother of Gilgamesh, she that knows all things. It's like a mom always knows right now. Yes. (laughs) Said unto Gilgamesh, truly, O Gilgamesh, he is born in the fields like thee. The mountains have reared him. Thou beholdest him and art distracted. Heroes kiss his feet. Thou shalt spare him. Thou shalt lead him to me. Again, he dreamed and saw another dream and reported unto his mother. My mother, I've seen another dream. I beheld my likeness in the street. In Eric of the wide spaces, he hurled the axe and they assembled about him. Another axe seemed his visage. I saw him and was astounded. I loved him as a woman, falling upon him in embrace. I took him and made him my brother. The mother of Gilgamesh, she that knows all things, said unto Gilgamesh, that he may join with thee in endeavor. So what do you see in this? It is fabulous. Well, I mean, I think you definitely, there's a lot you can see. I mean, there's all sorts of readings. Uh, This can be a story of two men who fall in love with each other. There would be two bisexual men because they, we also have in the text, they have relationships with women, sexual Mm -hmm. relationship with women, but they form a bond. They become deep, deep companions. They then go on adventures together. And at one point, spoiler alert, Enkidu gets killed. And the rest of the poem is Gilgamesh just so shattered and heartbroken and trying to deal with this grief. And to me, what I love is it it shows the story of a challenger, a usurper potentially coming along, like we see in 
in Isaac and Ishmael. And instead of the mother trying to undermine it, or a parent trying to undermine it, you see this encouragement note, like, you two could, you need each other. Well, we have come to the end of our time together. We thank you so much for listening. Next episode will be my turn. And I've been thinking about telling the story of Daniel. Mm. I know we're really stuck in the Hebrew Bible. I have all these Christian scripture stories to tell, New Testament, as they say, stories to tell from the Gospels. And I know I want, I want to get to those, but, um, it, it, this is really, because of your Hebrew, I'm just like, well, I want to just stay more on those stories. Well, they're my favorite too. I have some wonderful stories in the Christian oh. text, but the storytelling in the Hebrew text is just so wonderful. And if you, as you listen, you say, oh gosh, I wish you would talk about this story or with this passage of the Bible, uh, you can contact us, ministriesbeyondwelcome.org. Go to that website. There's a, a contact or send an email to ministriesbeyondwelcome at gmail.com. Liam is the executive director of Ministries Beyond Welcome. I'm just a friend here. I'm just a friend of that. And I do my own thing over at petersontoscano.com, where you can find out about my film, Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible. And I'll make sure there's something up there about the amazing adventures of the afterbirth of Jesus. Or you can find that at another website, meetinghouse.xyz. Yes, if you haven't checked out either of those prior to finding us here, you really need to check out Peterson's work. You're listening to Spirit in Action with me, Peterson Toscano. And me, Liam Hooper. There's more coming up in a moment. We'll get back to Peterson and Liam in just a moment, but first I want to remind you that you're listening to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. Not just radio, not just spirit radio, but Northern Spirit Radio, up north here in Wisconsin, but with guests from all over and guest host today, Peterson from Pennsylvania and Liam from North Carolina. On the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website, there's lots of info and resources. All of our programs for the past 14 years for listening and download, info and links relative to our guests, the stations where our programs are carried, and a number of podcasts like those of Peterson's Citizens Climate Radio, and more. And remember to post a comment and rate programs as you visit and listen. And click on that wonderful Donate button to energize this listener-underwritten program. We need your help. But first support your local media, like the community radio stations that carry our programs, and the local music and local news and local voice. Start with giving your hands and money to make that voice welcome and powerful. Now, back to our guest hosts for today's installment of the Bible Bash podcast, Liam Hooper and Peterson Toscano. Take it away, Peterson and Liam. So what do we have on for today? You have an alternate text for us. Yes, I do. I found a fascinating little Eucharistic prayer. You, I don't even know what that is. I'm going to learn something new. Yes, Thank it'll you. be interesting, I think. Okay. And I am going to dabble in the book of Daniel. A lot of people know of the story of Daniel in the lion's den. People, you know, this is a well-known story. Even if you're not Jewish or Christian, this, this is a story that's kind of known out there. But the story of Daniel and his friends is pretty intense in lots of ways. As an actor, I am always curious about background. Uh, when I'm preparing for a role, I'm thinking like, what were the experiences this person that I'm playing has gone through, what are their pains, what are their needs, their desires. 
And the reality is, this is a story of people in exile. This is a story of refugees. And there's a, a series of these stories, Daniel and Esther in particular, where it's a very similar story. It's these Jewish children who are living in exile. Esther's in Persia, Daniel's in Babylon. And they're told in such a way to reveal how extraordinary they are, these young Jewish people in this foreign land. And they stand up for their faith. They protect their people. It's, it's definitely an object lesson to the nation. And they're in these pretty exotic locations, too, the Persian court, the Babylonian court. Yes. There's a lot going on there. But the one thing I, when I begin to read the book of Daniel, I try to remind myself of the trauma that these characters would have experienced. They're young men. And when we say that, sometimes people think, oh, well, they're like 16, 17. They're actually not even young men. They're boys. As far as we can tell, they're boys. And they have been captured in war. Babylon was the mighty military power. It grew, this empire grew by conquering other people. And anytime there is war in the ancient world and the modern world, with that comes much, much horror and suffering. Who knows what these boys saw? Who knows the horrors of war that they witnessed, seeing their villages being destroyed, their cities destroyed, their parents being killed, perhaps right in front of their eyes, pillaging and rape and horrible things. So they are utterly traumatized. Many people did not survive, so they may even have some survivor guilt. Why am I alive? They're brought to this foreign court, different language, different culture, and they are placed in a position to be groomed to serve the very king who destroyed their lives. So here they are in a situation as young people, so what they're living in a palace, so what they're going to be in a royal court, they're, they're serving their enemy and they're living with this trauma. I'll read a little bit from Daniel 1. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Now, what's really important here, Ashpenaz is the chief of his officials. The Hebrew word for that is saris. It's the chief of the saris, or sarisai, I don't know. How would you say the plural? Sarisim. Sorry, Seem. See, he's the Hebrew expert on the performance artist. <laughs> I don't know that I would go as far as expert. <laughs> and so this word official is translated as official. So, you know, Saris is, is translated as official, but it can also be translated as eunuch. And very often, a Saris was a eunuch. Therefore, often they were foreigners who were captured in war, who as boys were held down against their will and were castrated. Their testicles were crushed. Their penises were cut off. We covered this earlier on, I think in episode two with, with a, a eunuch that we talked about there. Ashpenaz has his own experience of pain and suffering. I don't, don't know actually what pronoun to use for Ashpenaz because we don't know with a eunuch. They were gender non-conforming. They were uh, definitely not male, not female, something in the middle or altogether different. Ashpenaz is in charge of looking over these boys. And these the boys that they chose were youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving the king's court. They were beautiful boys. And in a foreign court, that could become dangerous. And some scholars have suggested that they also were made eunuchs themselves. 
uh, because that was the custom. We never hear about Daniel's family or children or anything. So it's quite possible that they too either had already been castrated and went through that suffering in addition, or that was something that was going to happen during this grooming period. Ashpenaz was ordered to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. A whole other language, whole other culture. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, three-year term that they had to learn, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Again, who knows what sort of the service was. I'm sure all kinds, eunuchs provided all sorts of services. They were messengers. They looked over women's quarters and the women. They were advisors. They were soldiers. They were guards. And they also performed sexual functions. And since they were slaves, they were pressed into service. They often did not, they did not have a whole lot of say other than to get themselves killed unless they could escape. We don't know. This is all speculation. We have no idea what that meant to enter the king's personal service, but it could mean many things. Now, among them from the sons of Judah were three, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, but they get new names. Right there, you know, just as what happens too. We talked about names in the last last episode. They lose the power over their own name, and they're giving a new name, Babylonian name. Uh, and this happened to Esther too. She was Hadassah, and then she gets this Persian name of Esther. So you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some people know those names. Those are the new names of his friends. And Daniel isn't known as Daniel. He's known as Belteshazzar. So they're living in this dorm, I guess, this royal dorm in this three-year schooling to prepare them to serve the king. And they're getting this food. I mean, it sounds like at least somewhat of a good deal under the circumstances. They're getting this wonderful, rich food, but they have a problem with this. And the way the text talks about it, they don't want to defile themselves, particularly Daniel. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, of course, in the Jewish faith, there are certain foods that are unclean. It sounds like some of that was being served to him. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials, Ashpenaz, head eunuch. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king. So everyone's in this oppressive system. The chief eunuch says, but I'm afraid the king, he has appointed this food for you and this drink. And what's going to happen if you don't eat it? For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Because he feared if we didn't give you this rich food, you would not do so well. Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king this very, very dangerous system. You have to follow what the king says. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over them, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. A vegan diet. Just, I'm just saying it is a a vegan (laughs) diet here. (laughs) A vegan diet here in the Bible. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. And what happens is they eat the vegetables, vegetables and water. They're not having all this rich food and they look fabulous. It's just great. They're thriving. What moves me about this story is this Ashpenaz, one of those overlooked characters, because it's all about Daniel. 
Even Daniel's friends are sort of sidelined. It ultimately is about Daniel making a stand for the Lord and ultimately being tossed into a lion's den. And who knows what will happen perhaps next month. You might want to talk. You're going to talk about that one, maybe? Yes. I'm so excited to do that. What happens is you have this eunuch who has so little freedom. Maybe the eunuch is able to fall in love and have a partner of some sort, but there's no children in the equation unless they adopt children, because being a eunuch, they were non-procreative males. And in this court, Ashpenaz becomes a parent to these very broken, frightened, traumatized children. And yes, there are religious laws about food and all, but I don't know about you, when when I'm far from home and I'm feeling overwhelmed, maybe when I'm even going through an incredibly hard time, sometimes I need comfort food. Uh And I could imagine Ashpenaz, he's in this, in this situation trying to care for them. And they're, they're basically saying, we can't eat this. You know, and of course it's this food. It's so weird to them. It's so different, but it's, it's, it's also, it's not what they're used to. And they've lost everything. They've got nothing. They don't have their family. They probably have no artifact. They can't even use their language anymore. And in essence, Ashpenaz gives them what they want, which is comfort food. And they thrive on it. It may well have been a superior diet, but also emotionally, they needed one thing that they can say reminds us of home. And to me, that detail in the story is extraordinary. And is often overlooked the sort of pain and suffering that Ashpenaz experienced himself or their self as a eunuch. And that kind of pain and suffering could sometimes make people bitter. It could make them oppressive. The bullied can become the bully so easily. But in this case, there was empathy and compassion. And that just moves me whenever I think of Ashpenaz as one of these other eunuch characters, who again, is a foreigner who suffered and it opens up their heart to love and to show compassion. Yes. I think that's the really human aspect of this story that often gets missed, along with some others, you know, one of your favorites being Esther, one of our favorites being Esther. The way that even oppressed peoples whose freedom is completely restricted, who have very little choices they can make in their given day, make these pretty dramatic choices to come to the human aid of others who are suffering. And I often wonder if those aren't really the stories in all these religious stories that matter the most, right? Not so much, you know, who sinned and who didn't and what was their horrible sin and did they get right with all that? And, you know, how did God's actions swoop in and help resolve a bad situation? But how did human beings under enormous stress and difficult conditions reach out to and become compassionate to other human beings? That, to me, is where we see the face of something we might call God. It's in how human beings care for one another. And that transcends, you know, faith traditions or concepts of who God is and who God isn't. You just see these people caring for one another in a way that we might imagine the God in us would respond. And what I find extraordinary about these stories, like in Esther and Daniel, the other Ethiopian eunuch in Jeremiah 38... You have this ironclad prohibition that marks eunuchs and foreigners as outsiders. They are forbidden from the assembly of the Lord. This is in Deuteronomy. Yes. And so you have this situation where people who are foreigners, who are the sexual and gender minorities, they're, they're outsiders. They're shut out. Completely. But then during this time of suffering, 
the Jewish people who are living in exile and who need protection and comfort and, and helpers, the eunuchs are the ones who are there for them, who are always foreigners, even foreigners within those courts. They're outsiders. They're these gender and sexual minorities. And what's fascinating is how the text then responds so that by the time you get to Isaiah, you have Isaiah 56, yes. where suddenly God's saying, oh, these eunuchs don't say you're a dried up old tree, but you, you, you got a place in my house. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to give you a memorial. You know, so often these eunuchs didn't have names. Ebed Melech in Jeremiah 38. That's not a name. It's a title. Yes. Their names are stripped, we see. But, you know, here's a name for you. And I'm going to write your wall, your name on the walls of my house. I'll give you a memorial better than sons and daughters. You will never be cut off. Yes. And the implication being cut off from me, from from your God, and also from the people. Because I will bring you into the community, which is what's so striking to me later in the Christian text. You know, we were talking in the last episode about how there are Christian texts we like to talk about. The baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch was so significant that the Holy Spirit sends Philip out on a dusty road toward Jerusalem. Not to a place, but to a road to a place. Just solely to baptize this eunuch. And then the Holy Spirit, the scripture tells us, snatches Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. So it's like so important that the voice of God sends Philip out there to do this. And, you know, I can't help being a modern day eunuch of, of, of some form. I can't help but wonder, you know, what are these stories really telling us? And where are we seeing really sort of a sacred level of compassion and engagement in times when it would be understandable? And perhaps permissible. Like we would all say, okay, you know, can't argue with you being closed off and isolated and not necessarily engaged with other people or worried about other people suffering when it's all you can do to get through the day alive and not lose your head. And then to still extend that compassion and that, you know, love that to me, this story is so parental. It's so everything a good parent ought to be. Let me, let me do these things for you that might make all this horridness just a little bit more, oh, I don't know, survival. Maybe not, you know, mediate that pain much, but you might be able to survive it just a little bit better. And also listening. There's this listening. Here's this adult figure, Ashpenaz. This child is saying, this is what I want. This is what I need. And so often, an authority figure can say, well, tough, suck it up. This is what you got. But Ashpenaz heard and listened. And I think this is what's extraordinary when a parent can hear a child speaking about their identity in a yes. way that is unexpected. And maybe it was unexpected. And so there's this a moment you have to like, well, I'm not prepared for this, but ultimately say, it's quite possible my child knows most about themselves. And so let me listen to what they're saying. Yes, and let me listen in a way that's responsive, even if it puts me at risk, whether it's my worldview or my safety that is at risk, but let me listen and respond. Right. It's such a beautiful story. Such a beautiful story. Well, thanks. Thanks for adding to it. It's, I love this, uh, the back and forth we get to do. I do too. That's my favorite part. And you have for us another text. Yes, that, you know, I was thinking about the compassion in this story and also 
we were talking in the previous episode, and we talk about this a lot, about how these stories are high literature, you know, and these literary tropes that we think were handed down to us from the Romans and the Greeks were actually originating in these cultures, some of them very ancient. And Ugarit is an area, refers to an area. So when we talk about Ugaritic tests, we're talking about texts that were created in that area. And it's, it's near Syria. This particular prayer comes from a group of texts from found in a little town there in Ukraine. And there are these marvelous correlations of literary tropes between Hebrew, Ugaritic texts, and um, Canaanite texts. So to me, this sounds like the prayers we find in the, in the Hebrew Psalms. And so I thought that was what would make it kind of interesting. And what year would this be about? Um, probably around 1400-ish B.C. Okay. This is old. Mm-hmm. There are older ones, but this one just really struck me for some reason. So in the previous episode we did, we were also talking about how El is a name for God. And that there was this pantheon of gods, and gods were place-oriented too. You know, there were gods of this place versus gods of that place. And one of the ones you hear about all the time in the Hebrew text is Baal. And it's not in a good light. No, no, no. Not Baal, in a good light at all. No, no, right? it's a bad thing. <laughs> and yet, these Hebrew Psalms come out of this already existing condition. And one of the, one of the things I teach, I don't want to take too much time with this, but one of the things I teach is that we forget that when Scripture was written, it was pre-existed by culture. So Scripture is written backwards, and then we read it backwards with all of our assumptions and presuppositions about it. So it's this lovely prayer written, kind of a psalm, at the revival of Baal. So there's a resurrection story in Baal that sort of foreshadows this thing that will be attached to that fellow from Nazareth. In a dream of El, the kindly, the merciful, in a vision of the creator of created things, the heavens ran oil, the wadis ran with honey. El, the kindly, the merciful, rejoices. His feet on the footstool he sets. He relaxes, reserve, and laughs. He raises his voice and cries, I shall sit and take my ease, and the soul shall repose in my breast. For Baal the mighty is alive, for the prince, the lord of the earth, exists. Wow. It's this lovely image of Baal, who we think of as, as evil and horrible, also El, right? That Baal is there for the people to come rest at Baal's breast. The kindly, the merciful, merciful. who rejoices. Yes, and takes, you know, respite, Mm. waiting and making space for us, for Baal's people, God's people, to come and rest. These are also terms you hear attached to who? Allah. You know, in our previous story, we were talking about Ishmael and Hagar being the people who gave us the people of Islam. And here we hear the kindly, the merciful. These are the same terms that get ascribed to Allah. And they are also terms we find describing God in the Psalms. 
Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that. Where can people find this? This I found in one of those books I collected as a Bible geek and a divinity student called Documents from Old Testament Times. This is D. Winton Thomas is the editor, and it was a Harper Books, so probably... It's old. Uh, it's old. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's so nice now. You can get things out of print so easy, easy, easily online at different places. There's lots of good, yes, people go to Amazon, but there's also lots of good used bookstores that have online registries so that you can get it there. Yes, and this one actually was one I picked up. This was the original copyright was 1958. So this book belonged to the dean of the School of Divinity where I was educated at Wake Forest School of Divinity. This was Dino Day's book in her private collection, and it is now mine. Well, thank you for sharing it. Well, thank you for letting me, you know, have a moment of remembrance from my dean as well. And if you, dear listener, would like to share something with us, if you've got another text that you would like us to include in our uh, section on other texts, if you have a Bible story you would like us to look at, if you have a guest that you would like us to have from any tradition that looks at the Bible, and there's so many that look at the Bible, let us know. And we're really grateful that you've listened. Please tell your friends about us. And feel free if, uh, to rate and review us on whatever platform you're using that will help get the word out. Thank you for listening to Spirit in Action. We're really grateful to be with you today. If you want to hear more of what we do with the Bible Bash podcast, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can email us with suggestions or comments at ministriesbeyondwelcome at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Mark, for having us as guest hosts. Indeed. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome, Liam, and you too, Peterson. And folks, we've got links to the various websites for Liam and Peterson on northernspiritradio.org, plus their monthly installment of the Bible Bash podcast. I'm so grateful for their work, their activism, and their shining example of turning religion, the Bible, and the Spirit in support of the common good. And by the way, we'll have Peterson's Citizen Climate Radio featured on Spirit in Action very soon, so there is more great stuff coming right around the corner. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 